0: In other words, being virtuous even if they're uh, not. All right. So a few quotes here. This is uh, 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 Venerable Ani Tenzin Pomo. She's an English woman who was was, uh, on retreat in Tibet for 12 years in a cave. Um, At one time, she had a a huge storm. She's all alone at whatever, 18,000, I have no idea, 1,000 feet. And a big pile of snow just dropped on her in her cave in the middle of nowhere, middle of the night you know, smothering her in snow. And in that moment, this thought went through her mind, what did you expect from samsara? You know, which is the realm of this sort of, you know, reality. And in that moment, she had an awakening experience. But anyway, she's, she's the real deal, in my view. So she says here, wisdom is all about understanding the underlying spacious and empty quality of the person and all experienced phenomena. Okay? To attain this quality of deep insight, we must have a mind that is quiet and malleable. Achieving such a state of mind requires that we first develop the ability to regulate our body and speech so as to cause no conflict. Sometimes people want to jump ahead to the esoteric teachings and they skip over the fundamentals of putting their own house in order, right? Here's the Buddha. There are those who do not realize that one day we all must die. But those who do realize this settle their quarrels.
1: Mm.
0: Or at least do what we can on our side of the street. I remember reading a quote from a, a monk, uh, Ajahn Amaro. Ajahn is an honorific. He too is an Englishman from England, or uh, Great Britain. And uh, he said, he's, he, I just read a little thing he wrote, in which he said that he was working these days on disengaging from contentiousness, argumentativeness, quarrelsomeness, righteousness. Now, I knew him as a very far along practice kind of person. And he, too, is still working on some contentiousness. So that's been an important practice for me, to just disengage from contentiousness, including that inner argument that we often get caught up in that's so unproductive. Okay? And then as Longfellow writes here, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm any hostility. It doesn't mean stop us from being assertive or engaging in justice practices, but we don't have to activate the wolf of hate and be hostile to that person. Okay? So I'm kind of laying a foundation here with some heavy hitters. All right. Let's see. Here's a big one. Whoever takes a stick to beings desiring ease when one self is looking for ease will meet with no ease after death. On the other hand, whoever doesn't take a stick to beings desiring ease when one is looking for ease will meet with ease after death. This is in a frame in which there's a notion of life after life after life, but even without that, um, you can, you know, appreciate the central teaching here. So how do we actually do it? So I want to talk a little bit about relationship virtues. And actually before I forget it, I'm so sorry, I'm gonna make a couple quick announcements. Alright? So I'm changing topics for a moment. People reminded me at the break, they're quick. Announcement one is if you want to get these slides, just give me your name and email address. Please print neatly. You don't have to do anything else. Second, if you want to go to my website, which is chock full of freely offered resources, truly, and there's no, you know, it's, it's full of stuff, uh, it's rickhanson.net. Okay, that's that. And third, this may be of interest to you. Um, I was asked about it. I'm doing a series now in which that's freely offered. It's called The Compassionate Brain. And I'm interviewing seven people. Uh, Richie Davidson, great scholar of neuroplasticity, Dan Siegel, Tara Brock, uh, Kelly McGonigal from Stanford, Decker Keltner from UC Berkeley, Kristen Neff on self-compassion, and Gene Houston. It's like the all-stars. I feel very lucky. I'm the interviewer. And uh, this is done uh, with both a video and audio recording. So if you can't watch it on Monday nights, we've done three so far; there are four to go. If you can't watch it live on Monday nights, uh, you can, uh, if you register for the series, you can download you can download it anytime you want afterward. And again, it's freely offered, and you can share it with others, do with it what you want. It's truly Donna. So if you have any interest in that series, you could just Google Compassionate Brain or Compassionate Brain, Hanson, S-O-N, and that'll take you there. Okay? Those are my announcements. Back to this. So, I want to talk a little bit about establishing a foundation of our own virtue before we get into um, assertiveness. Because if we're... um, If we're upright over here, if we're walking the talk over here, if we're... Um, taking the high road over here that feels good in its own right. It also is the best odd strategy for evoking good behavior from the other person. And if that doesn't work, it puts us on the high moral ground, the moral high ground. Pretty good. So a quick survey of Buddhist relationship virtues. These are the main ones. These are not seen in Buddhism as commandments that it's a sin to violate, these are actually seen as ways to train the mind. It's a very pragmatic, it's not a moralistic orientation. Okay, so the five fundamental precepts are not to kill, steal, uh, lie, uh, harm others sexually, or use intoxicants. The use intoxicants one is fuzzy. People talk about using intoxicants to the point of heedlessness or clouding the mind. Other people translate that as don't use intoxicants because they lead to heedlessness and cloud the mind. Okay? That one's up to you. Okay? Then we have uh, right livelihood. Don't trade in weapons, living beings, no slavery. Uh, That was the Buddha's time. Uh, Meat, intoxicants, or poisons. Right speech. Here are the six guidelines for right speech. Five are mandatory, according to the Buddha. One is desirable but optional. So right speech is speech that is well-intended, true, beneficial or useful, uh, timely, and not harsh. Tone is huge, isn't it? Tone. And the sixth, uh, ideally, is speech that is wanted by the other person. (laughs) It's not always the case that they want it, but boom, it's time to say it. Okay. I find these are quite helpful. Usually if things are going fine, you put them in the back of your mind. But if you're walking into a difficult conversation, ask yourself, am I operating according to the right speech guidelines? The six, or especially the first five, notably tone. Tone is often the hardest. Okay? So then the question becomes, um, you know, how do we actually do this in real life? So first of all, any questions about these so far? My view is that, and I believe this is the Buddhist teaching as well, is that we should do this even if other people don't. Now, a little detail. Suzuki Roshi, who founded uh, San Francisco Zen Center, one of the early wave of Zen, great teacher, wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and other things. He's, he was quoted as saying that sometimes you must violate all five precepts to do the right thing so you know we can exercise our own judgment that said generally speaking the teaching is to live by our own code no matter what they do to focus on our own side of the street this goes for me to what I call the 80 20 rule in relationships where I'm gonna focus maybe 20 percent on what I want from them and I'll be quite assertive about it, as my wife and kids will tell you. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I have very limited influence over what they do. And at the end of the day, I have a lot more influence over what I do. And honestly, I'm very interested in taking maximum reasonable personal responsibility for their complaints with me. Notice those words maximum reasonable responsibility for their complaints with me. And then I just love lining them out. So they'll shut up. I didn't say that, did I? Anyway, just line them out. Just line them out. Unilaterally. Do it. You know, weeks in a a row. And they're still doing their thing, whatever it is, loading the dishwasher the wrong way, hassling you for stupid stuff, not putting the, you know, leaving the lid of the toilet seat up, for God's sake. It's the whole thing. But you just, you just, relentlessly disappear their legitimate grievances. That you can, and you decide what's legitimate. You Disappear them. Well, after a few weeks of that, that puts you in a real strong position, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So any comments or questions about this? And then we'll talk about assertiveness and cases. And, you know, uh, we're on the finishing stretch here. So any questions or comments about relationship virtues your own personal code and um, the notion of unilateral virtue. Great. It's a slippery slope to what? Moral superiority. Right. Okay. Thanks for copying to that. That was. That was superior in a good way <laughs> to cop to how unilateral virtue can take us to moral superiority, feeling better than they are. yeah. Um, yeah, how to guard against that. Um, I was just internally thinking of the Buddha's metaphor of a raft where we hit a river of suffering, we build a raft, an intermediate vehicle that get us across, but once we're across, we don't keep carrying it around and not yet enlightened, uh, if I have a little bit of superiority, and that helps motivate me to you know, ch- keep my patience and um, choose my words carefully when they're not, and not go inflammatory when they are, and not take the bait when they just drop all kinds of other unrelated topics right on the table. You know, and then they bring my mother into it. (laughs) Whatever, you know, if it helps me find refuge in my own virtues to think, I'm playing by the rules and you're not. You know, I'm going to take it. That's my raft in that moment, maybe. So, okay, there's that part. But then how do we not go too far with that? I think it helps to know what our vulnerabilities are. If we're a little prone to being organized around standards and then observing others who keep falling short of them, I wouldn't do that. Anyway, uh, you know, then we know we got to be a little careful about that superiority thing. And um, that's where, you know, it's very interesting. It's where you kind of just disengage almost. You're relational, but a lot, you're just, whatever they do is whatever they do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to live by my code. I'm going to be an honorable person. I'm not even thinking about whether I'm doing it and they're not doing it. I mean, I'm noticing it a little bit, but mostly I'm over here. I'm communicating for myself. I'm living from my own code uh, for its own reasons. I'm staying within my own, as Stephen Covey talked about it, my own circle of influence. Rather than getting all caught up in my circle of concern that's outside my circle of influence, like how they ought to act differently. That helps me, I suppose. Um, and then the other, the teachings, you can see the, pr- the progression here of topics, you know, appreciating the ways that other people are, um, you know, they're complex beings, they, they, they were once beautiful little children, uh, things happened, things happened, I'm not using this to put them down, I mean, to see that, um, that is good for us and it's also good for them. Uh, I'll tell you a little story, and it's, it's not with someone who mistreated me, really, but my mother is no longer alive. Um, very loving person, and a lot, the way she expressed her love was by helping you discover what you could do better. <laughs> you know that kind of person? I, I was raised a casual Methodist, but she was like, I don't know, you know, classic whatever kind of mother. But, so she, she could find that thing. And um, so, and she had a big personality and a lot of people would talk about it. It was aggravating to me as a young adult. And I finally realized that um, getting reactive to her personality, her mind, her words, the look in her eye, was not helping me. And it wasn't helping her or my family. And so I started ignoring her personality. I started trying to look through it and I imagined it as a kind of lattice work on which vines grew but I could look through her personality to the warm fire whose light and heat I could sense that always loved me truly deep down below the layer of her personality her persona her presentation to the world her own troubled childhood down deep and I just zeroed in on that fire you know, like an airplane landing in storm at night that just tracks the carrier wave and just rides that carrier wave down to a safe landing. I just kind of locked on to my mom's love for me and sort of bypassed almost everything else. I mean, I protected myself. I arranged for separate lodgings if I went to go visit them and, you know, a nice motel down the road or whatever uh, if I needed to. But I, it really helped me to do that. That's what I'm talking about in part, seeing the being behind the eyes. Okay. All right, thanks. Any more questions or comments about unilateral? There you are. Good point. She's she's saying, or as Jesus said a long time ago, let the person without sin cast the first stone. She was saying, you know, one way also to respond to the man's question, uh, to reduce that uh, vulnerability to moral superiority is to recognize that we're still quite flawed. You know, we're we're cracked too. Great. Okay. Do you have questions about, yeah, your code or unilateral virtue? Please.
1: Yeah. The opposite end of it is the inferiority. So sometimes I find myself here and people have and uh depending on the circumstance, it's hard to relate with their context that they develop when you realize that okay, here you, you are right but they realize they are wrong, right? Right. So
0: Okay. So, I'm not sure I fully got it. So you're in a situation where you're, you're asserting yourself in some way, let's say. You want something. And you're taking into account that the other person may have low self-esteem or low worth. Yeah. And so if you stand up for yourself, they'll end up feeling bad. Right. And how do you work with that in general? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, um, the reason what I'm thinking here is a great question, is whether to respond to it right now or to slide ahead a little bit. So I think I'll use this as a segue to talking about ways to be assertive. And well, I'll do it partly like this first, Okay. I, I really think there's a place for recognizing our impact on other people. Our intent may be good, but our impact is strong. Uh, when our kids were were younger, my wife uh, said to me one time, essentially, she said, Rick, you don't realize how intense you are. I thought I was just being kind of serious. <laughs> and my serious, there's a certain amount of topspin behind it, a certain amount of juice behind it. And I didn't realize that at all. Because I thought of myself as this dorky, nerdy guy, you know, who's kind of a... You know, like unnerved by all these much older, bigger, burlier kids growing up. And so sometimes we don't realize our impact on others. Class, uh, education, uh, vocabulary can really hit others, particularly if they belong to different groups in different kinds of ways uh, that are very understandable. It's not because they're super thin-skinned or looking for a fight. You know, Uh, there really is something that lands hard. So I think taking into account the other person, and to preview a theme I'll get to in a moment, for me, a lot, if I'm in that, I think there are different kinds of interactions. A lot of interactions, we're just having fun together, or hanging out, or just sort of sharing experiences. We're not trying to get anything done, where there's any difference between us. And then others, we're actually trying to get something done, but we're both totally on the same page. No big. Even if we disagree about something, the frame is that we're on the same page. We're eye-thowing with each other. Then there are those conversations where, huh, I didn't like that you did that, and I got to figure out whether it's going to happen again, and if if it's going to keep happening, what I'm going to do about that, and how to be about this. You know, you did something that bothered me. You know, I winced. It happened. Or I'm worried that I did something that upset you, and now we're in it, okay? In those kind of conversations, which is really what we're talking about where it's hard, I myself try to fairly quickly establish what my goal is. What am I trying to have happen here? Am I, what, am I trying to simply understand something or discover what's true? What are this person's real intentions? What are their real capabilities? Or did I mishear a word? Or did they... Um, I had a funny interaction with, my, with our daughter who's 22 the other day. I called home, and um, I said something about dinner, and she heard me say, uh, I don't care what you, uh, what you do about dinner or something. And it was like a negative criticism, and then she fired back. And I didn't actually say that. She just misheard me. So tracking what was really hurt. So sometimes we want to find out what, what really happened. Other times we want to find out, if we just simply want to get that this person hears us, they don't need to change. we just want to feel that they got it, so that's what we want. Other times we want to uh, have their behavior change in the future. We want them to get home on time. We don't want them to use that word. we don't want them to call us "sister" or "girly" in a workplace environment or whatever you know uh, we want them to stop going over budget. Uh, you know, we want them to, they're a kid, they're a teenager, we want, them to let us, we want them to let us know where they are at night in case we have to reach them. We want a behavioral change. And then I'm trying to see what behavioral change can I get or what's actually going to happen here? And then what will I do if I don't get it? So for me this basic idea of what's the prize is really helpful and it's often really helpful to just have one, mm. one at a time. Because very often, and this I guess I will bounce ahead. Good, the first one. Very often when I see happen, because I'm a couples counselor often, I'll watch couples have a good quarrel or a good fight. They're good fights and they're bad fights. I'll watch them have a bad fight yet again in my office. um, And uh, it has a certain quality. And part of it sometimes is A and B. A will, let's, let's say it's a heterosexual couple, Let, it's, okay, she's a woman. Let's say she gets what she needs from her partner. So she wants her partner to really agree to um, divide the housework in a different way, or really actually do some small fraction of his share. Okay. <laughs> research shows on average uh, women do and heterosexual couples do 20 hours a, a week in families more housework and child care than the, their partner does whether or not she's drawing a paycheck that's the average today it's a lot better than it was a generation ago and it's not that way in many homes but in many homes it is that way there're equity issues okay so and uh so he will agree he'll cop to it he'll go yeah i get it you know and he'll cop he'll go yeah you're right, I, I've taken my agreements at work much more seriously than ones at home, even though I hate my job. It makes no sense at all, right? And you're right, if I say I'm gonna do something, I really need to seriously do it. I may slip, I apologize, I'm not saying that as a preemptive excuse, but if I do slip, you can count on me to, to be honorable about this one. By the way, that's a good way to talk. If you're caught screwing up and you wanna correct, you know, make a clean commitment for it. Okay. So let's say he does that. Then she piles on. And the next thing you know, we're talking about how he drives. It's too fast. It's so irritating. Or the fact that he makes this funny chuffling noise when he eats. <laughs> and, and then he's... He's ready to get fired up right there, you know. Forget this agreement about, you know, taking you more into account with housework and all that. Who are you to hassle me about how I drive? My dad did enough of that when I was growing up. Whatever, and then it's game on. Because they lost track, what's the prize? Consolidate your victory, (laughs) you know what I mean? Backfill the infrastructure, stabilize it, reward the other person for being a reasonable partner. (sighs) Shut up! You know, right? Don't snatch victory from the, or defeat from the jaws of victory, in other words, right? Okay, so I would say that. And then the last thing, I'll just say on your point, and we're clearly segueing into this assertiveness stuff, um, is, you know, I don't want others to suffer, but sometimes I recognize that if I pursue my legitimate rights and needs, in the larger frame of society and culture and norms and laws, that other person's going to not feel good. But sometimes I have the right to do that. You know, I think we're full of examples like that. A hundred people apply for a job. One person's going to get it. That one person gets it, in a sense, the other 99 are going to suffer. Do we want to deny the one the opportunity to, to really get that job and compete for it and hopefully fairly earn it? Um, no. Even though others may suffer. So um, I, myself, um, I try to take that into account. Not, and not be glib about it. Recognize the pitfalls in this slippery slope or slippery slopes in this kind of thinking. But to realize that ultimately um, I do have rights. You do have rights. And also, ultimately, we are not the source fundamentally, of what other people's experience is. And then last, sometimes other people, honestly, it's appropriate for them to have a little bit of a negative experience. You know, it'll there's a lesson to learn in it. Obviously, this is slippery slope reasoning, but sometimes there's a place for letting reality land on the other person and not protecting them from it. You know, it's Stephen Gaskin who founded uh, The Farm, Tennessee. Ina May Gaskin, that incredible book, Spiritual Midwifery. He taught Monday night class here in the hippie era when I was still not old enough to drive. But anyway, he had a great line about karma. He said, karma is hitting golf balls in a tiled shower, (laughs) All right? And for better or for worse, because karma is just results. It's just results of causes, better or worse, all right? And sometimes I think what we do with people is we keep stepping in the way of the golf ball, sailing back at them that they struck in the first place. And that doesn't serve them either. Okay. How about other examples of how to do assertiveness in tough situations um, on a foundation of benevolence and virtue? Those two good words, benevolence, virtue. Then we had three, assertiveness, okay? Try to think of an acronym. BAV, VAB, doesn't work. Okay, yeah, please.
1: You're right. It was my fault. I made a mistake. You were driving correctly, and I was driving wrong. But you can't call me those things. It's 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 ugly, and you don't have a right to do it. But I really apologize for making a mistake. And he went on. Yeah. 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 I love living
0: in Oakland. I really felt that There's so many opportunities to hit other cars. <laughs> <You know. laughs> okay, I hope you heard what she said. It was, too, it was too great to summarize very well, you know. But the essence of it is, you know, virtue is its own reward. Benevolence is its own reward. And let's be careful. Especially if we're vulnerable to letting other people off the hook way too much, you know, I, I in my twenties was in a slightly cult-like situation where I should have gotten out much sooner, but my own sense of responsibility kept me in, and my willingness to look at how um, I was at fault in various matters and to overfocus on that kept me in. Yeah. OK. so some keys about assertiveness, uh, lose battles to win wars. That's where sometimes we let other things fly by. We, the war you, she won there in that car accident situation was her own dignity and not knuckling under to a big, aggressive person. You know, and then you could put that in larger frames. Women classically, very often, the target of big, aggressive males, right? not knuckling under, that was a great prize to win. Uh, while also winning the prize of having the largeness of character to acknowledge fault. You know, I think that's one thing that's really worth thinking about, is acknowledge fault and move on. When I realized that a really great thing for me, selfishly, was to cop to stuff, which is counterintuitive, to admit fault, and to take maximum responsibility fairly quickly for the other's grievance. When I realized that that was good for me, that was the fastest way to calm them down, you know, and also the fastest way to move on to a happier place, uh, I was like, great. And it made me feel virtuous. It's great, you know, in a good sense, not an uppity, high, and mighty sense, but all right, that was good. Anyway, so that's uh, a thought here where we focus on what we really want to deal with rather than getting distracted by all the other stuff. I think this is clear. Here? Any questions or comments on this slide? Great. I was
1: just going to say, it, your description, I'm sad to report, actually reminded me of some of my own marriage counseling moments. And
0: were you the victim or the, were you the, I was the, the client? Or you were the client? Yeah. Well, what yeah.
1: Until I could identify that that was actually what I wanted, and in fact he could not provide it, we, I would just add stuff because I kept looking for what it was he could do to make me not angry anymore, and there there wasn't anything um.
0: <laughs> that he could do.
1: There, there really wasn't. I couldn't come up with anything anyway. So yeah. Then I just had to go away and be angry for a little while. <laughs> um, but I that was what that made me think of. And I wondered if you had the sort of advice on that moment when you you realize you can be as assertive as possible, but there may not actually be something that they're going to be able to do that is going to make
0: you feel better. Right, okay, so she brings up, um, she says that even in, in, in her own couples counseling, that moment where the other person is forthcoming and you're still angry, let's say, what do you do then? Um, and you could take it outside of couples counseling, you know, obviously, as an example. Um, what that makes me um, think about are a couple of things here. Sometimes we're still upset about something, and the words get processed really quickly. This is a general reflection about the structure of the brain. Words, including inner language, go by very fast, two, three hundred a minute. But the gearing in the brain, they're little wheels that spin fast, but they're wheels that spin much more slowly. In other words, the, vis, the viscera, the gut, the, the ancient circuits in the reptilian brainstem, as it were, the inner iguana, those fellas are slow learners. And when we're upset by something, cortisol, you can have, uh, cortisol releases very, very quickly, and yet it takes a long time to metabolize. That's why we can know that the black bordered letter from the IRS with the skull and crossbones on it is actually addressed to the next door neighbor. (laughs) But your heart's still pounding ten minutes later. Right? (laughs) You know, because cortisol takes a while. So it takes a while. So letting just honoring the body, honoring nature, the little soft furry animal of the little body mind, and letting it realizing it may need more time. One. Two. I think very often we, as Dan Siegel puts it, we want to feel felt. And as I said, in passing I did my dissertation on 15-month-olds and having their wants responded to. What you could see with these kids, and same with adults, they wanted to get what they wanted. You know, they wanted the cookie, or they wanted the red truck, they wanted to bonk their toddler sibling on the head with a wooden spoon. They wanted stuff, good or bad. But what they Deeply wanted was they wanted their wants to be known. And even more deeply, they wanted to feel that their caregivers wanted to understand their wants. You know? So at the deepest level, we want to get what we want, but w- more than anything, we want to feel that the people that are important to us, who are uh, eyes to our thou, that we are a thou to them, and they really want to get it. They may not get it yet. They may be not the most empathic person on the planet, but they want to get it. And then often the trick, again, this is a delicate matter sometimes, is to give them what they need from us so they can give us what we need from them. Let's say we need from them empathy. We need from them the sense that they got it, that it landed. Oh, that's why you would care about that oh that's what bothered you when i said that oh i get now why because this is the thousandth time my fingernail has scraped the back of your hand it's just a fingernail but after a thousand times no wonder you 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 flare like that and we want to so what do we need pragmatically to give them Presuming they're sincere in their desires, but they're just not there yet. How can we resource them? What can we give them so they can give us what we need? See that circle? That's so fundamental to an important relationship. So sometimes we can give them um, just being quieter, not talking so fast, or pausing, or touching. You know, the soft furry animal of the body wants to be touched, you know. Uh, The first nine months of our life, we are touched most intimately, right? And we want to be touched thereafter. So I think it's also possible to ask people to receive us more. And those often are the most vulnerable requests, because they're not about how to load the dishwasher, drive the car, what you do with the toothpaste cap. But would you please give me a, a minute or two of your full attention? You know, would you let yourself be affected by my suffering? These are intimate requests, aren't they? And we expose ourselves to disappointment if we don't get them. But if we don't kind of establish a basis for for this kind of communication, it's difficult to have a really deeply safe or intimate relationship. other comments or questions up here your own code think about harsh tone yeah oh, good sorry thanks okay. back in the shadows there yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So, okay, so what do you do uh, when the other person, let's say, bringing it to this, uh, says something that is upsetting? And if we're upset, uh, whether we're irritated or alarmed or really just disappointed or just sort of stunned that they would do that, whatever that is, the same ancient machinery and plumbing that activated to get us away from charging tigers will activate today. So now, you're lit up, you put your finger in the socket, and you're, you're reactivated, let's say. So now we're five seconds in to the cascade, right? And what can you do? I think there are a variety of things to do. One is notice that you're upset. Right there. Pause. Don't say anything if you can help it. Don't, um, you know, don't, uh, don't add any uh, logs to the fire. Just buy yourself time, the gift of time to scope out what's really going down here. Third, a quality of self-compassion. Ouch, this hurts. Right? That really helps. And now at this point, about four more seconds have elapsed in real time, in the real world. When you're on your game, let's say. And then for me, fourth, this is, by the way, my first aid kit, these four. That's why I know the list, because I've used it. Fourth, get on your own side. Be a friend to yourself, wish yourself well, advocate, ally to yourself. This shall not pass, you know, on your own side. And then make a plan. To me, that's the fifth element, make a plan. So now, oh, okay, my first aid kit when I'm upset, when I'm triggered. Notice you're triggered. Pause, you know, just kind of try to observe to see what's going on, by yourself a little time. Slow it down. Uh, So many upsetting interactions happen quickly. Three, self-compassion. This hurts, ouch, I wish I didn't hurt. Four, on my own side. Hey, I want to get things better here, one way or another, and then make a plan. What am I going to do? Maybe what I'm just going to do is sit here and take it, because they've got more power, and I need this job and this health insurance, and internally, though, I'm going to start looking at want ads when I get home tonight. You know. Or maybe what I'm going to do is what she did with such potency there. You know, uh, I'm so sorry, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And it's not appropriate for you to also X, Y, Z at me. Right? Whatever. See what I mean? Or maybe the thing to do is just get out of the situation or back away. Or maybe the other thing to do is to lean in and realize this other person is really upset because you actually wronged them. You know, make a plan, whatever the plan might be. You know, maybe it's, you know, the plan that, man, I'm going to go to the plastic and get a ticket out of here. I've had it with this Thanksgiving craziness. I don't know what the plan is. Okay? That's the plan. So then then on the part of the plan, this is very, to me, helpful. We evolved to go through short bursts of stress if time's flowing this way. So this is the y-axis activation, x-axis of time whoosh, okay? But in the wild, as Robert Sapolsky writes about why zebras don't get ulcers, most episodes of stress are settled quickly, one way or another. You either get away from that charging lion or your lunch. And if you get away very quickly, you're back to baseline, where you're just kinda eating grass and it's all cool. Well, technically, the brain has basically two modes. This is the reactive mode. It also happens with positive emotion when we're really excited because our team is winning or our toddler is finally taking a step or whatever that is, we got our promotion. Um, but watch out because it's very easy for this activation to turn, dark, to turn ugly pretty fast with negative emotion. Okay, But then the normal template is to slide down into the responsive mode of the brain, the homeostatic equilibrium state of the brain, uh, where it repairs and refuels itself, the mind is colored with, in three general words, peace, happiness, and love. And we recover from this stressful burst. The problem with modern life is that we may not have the, 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 the peaks, the spikes, that a zebra does running from a lion. We have more mild to moderate stress levels, but it's chronic. We don't get to recover. Or we recover and then there's another one. There's another email. There's another demand. There's another text. There's another interruption, right? That's not good for the body-mind. So what helps the body-mind come out of this peak of stress activation, upset activation, and down into the recovery phase? Several things help. One is to try to calm the body. It's very hard to be upset if the body's totally relaxed. So long exhalations, which activate the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system... (laughs) which is the antidote to the fight or flight, stress response, sympathetic wing of the nervous system, which handles inhalation. That's why the heart speeds up a little when you inhale, slows down a little when you exhale, okay? Several long exhalations. It's not just a big breath, it's a long exhalation. that really helps there. Uh, Relaxing the tongue also helps relax the body. People have other quick ways, whatever works for you, any port in a storm, you know, that helps calm the body back down as fast as you can. Um, Not by numbing, not by de-energizing, not through hypo-arousal, where you just kind of, what's that term, freeze? You want to stay out of the freeze response. You don't want to tip into it. You still are, you're still, uh, there's a vitality and an engagement, but you're starting to calm your body down. A second thing, obviously, is to discern whether you're under immediate danger. You know, get out of immediate danger before you try to calm your body down, obviously. You know, make sure you're not in immediate danger. Step back from a person. Tell a person, look, I can't talk to you right now. I'll call you back in five minutes. Hopefully we'll both be calmer. Ba-bum. Whatever. You know. uh, Okay. Talk to the angry driver through your car window with the doors locked. You know, whatever. Okay. Uh, Calm the body. That's really important. And then two things that are really cool, actually that evolved in us to help our ancestors come out of these, these stress bursts into the responsive mode, which is where we really need to be for long-term sustainable equilibrium. What are two things that naturally begin to initiate the recovery phase? One, physical pleasure, or pleasure broadly. Because pleasure signals to the brain all is starting to get well, you know? And pleasure engages these natural opioids which are analgesic. They help with pain control in the brain. So pleasure of some kind helps calm us down. It could be a sight, a sound, a taste, a touch. could be even a thought. Um, Just the thought of something nice is a pleasurable experience. So pleasure. Pleasure is really underrated, I think. Uh, Pleasure is a good thing, as long as we don't crave what we like, what we enjoy. Okay. The other major way that our ancestors evolved to come out of these stress bursts is feeling cared about. Because when you're part of the band and you're home and you're safe, you're in your mother's arms, your dad's arms, whatever, or you're sitting around the fire again talking about the crazy thing that happened this day, you're with your your us. You're together with your us. And that is another way to really, really uh, feel safer. So being able to activate or draw upon a sense of being cared about, or being able to call a friend, or do a post uh, to Facebook, your account, just share what's happening, or somehow connect with others. Uh, It's really important. That's why um, I think the repeated internalization of the felt sense of being cared about on that range is so helpful so that when you need to, you can tap your inner iPod and start getting that song playing. That they may be really hostile in treating you very much like a them and it to their eye, but you've got peeps, people in your life, your folks, your, your team, who think you're cool. And they love you. They cherish you. And you're going to see them tonight. You know? OK. <coughs> Time's moving along here. I want to show you the next slide, OK? All right? So this is kind of a primer. And I'm going to send you these slides, right? So this is sort of, a, for me, a summary on one slide. Of healthy assertiveness. So, I want to just kind of name a few for me, highlight practical takeaway points. You may be doing everything on this slide already. Think of it as kind of a pre flight checklist for the next time you have to really stick up for yourself. Okay? So, I've spoken about wise speech, tone especially. Not using harsh tone has been very helpful for me personally. And not being necess- needlessly inflammatory actually enables you to be much more powerful and grave in your communicating nvc is nonviolent communications the actual the, the basic structure of nvc is when x happens i feel y because i need z x is described neutrally not when you're a jerk no <laughs> it's when you get home half you know at 6:30 for the fourth time this week even though you've agreed to always be home by six or call and act like nothing happens, okay? That's X. Why? I feel sad, let down, angry. Uh, I feel like I don't have a true partner. Nod. I feel you are an idiot. No, my emotions. Okay? You're the authority on your emotions. No one can dispute your experience. You know, my heart races. I feel like something in the pit of my stomach. I worry if we're a we or if we're just two bodies floating in space with the, who share a mortgage, okay? And then because I need Z, not I need you to stop being an idiot, but I, I need to feel safer. I need to feel a sense of partnership. I need to feel like there's a reliability in my intimate partners. Uh, I need to feel a sense of being respected. When everything's going fine, we don't need to do the pure form, but, you know, I, myself, if it starts getting a little intense, I'm going to go to NVC. Good form. all right. And then sometimes, if we want, we make requests, which I'll get to down here. Okay, Dignity and gravity, rather than sputtering. I see a lot of people who are in this hellish middle zone. Uh, they don't capture the benefits of staying quiet and keeping their counsel and building up their resources to fight another day nor do they capture the benefits of really going all in in a strong, full, dignified, and grave way and really go after the results they want. No, they're in this kind of hellish place in the middle where they're sputtering or complaining, but not doing so strongly enough to really have a change occur. Is this sputtering place clear? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Dignity, gravity. Me, I call to mind. a kind of channel my, you know, I, uh, people who are exemplars or models of that for me. I see right now in my mind's eye Aung San Suu Kyi, the uh, Burmese activist. Uh, uh, other people as well. Just strong, uh, but with a dignity about them. Okay. This one means distinguish between types of conversations. This goes from the uh, draws in the work of Deborah Tannen and her great book Why uh, You Just Don't Understand. She also has another book out, apparently. Uh, it's, it goes back to an episode that occurred when she visited her mother in the hospital. Her mother was sick and old. And uh, Deborah Tannen walked through the door to visit her mom, and her mom looked at her and said, you're wearing that? <laughs> so that became the title of the, that, the next book. But anyway, um, so her point is that some conversations are about solving problems. They're about policy. Other conversations are about empathy. They're about understanding each other. Uh, Sometimes person A thinks that we're trying to solve a problem and we're trying to describe things in a a kind of abstract or impersonal bird's-eye view way, whereas the other person thinks, no, we're just kind of sharing feelings, so we connect and we're kind of having the same process together. And that's very jarring. To generalize, and I've seen a significant number of uh, reversals of this, men tend to be focused on policy-making conversations, women tend to be focused more on empathy building, process conversations, generalization with a lot of um, exceptions and I've known a number of relationships heterosexual ones. I've seen these in uh, gay relationships too where one person is more the uh, empathy relational person who you wouldn't think of it uh, and the other person is more focused on solutions. It's helpful to do both, neither one's better than the other. Personally, I think it's best to start by joining. That became my mantra when our kids were born, start by joining. Often it's not necessary to do policy making or grievance resolution, because what you really needed to do was to join. And then if you do, you know, problem solving, you're gonna be much more effective at it if you have started by joining. Okay? And then on that I wanna make a point about people's imperatives. So, like, uh, often what people are talking about up here is a proxy for the real issues down here. That's people's imperatives. They're talking about uh, how late to let the kids stay up, but what is deep down here is autonomy fighting with intimacy to, let's say, one partner um, wants the kids to go to bed by 9 o'clock, and when the other person slips to 9.20, that partner feels like, wow, we're not a we. We're not together in raising a family. Ah, that becomes a real issue. And then that partner speaks up, uh, says to, let's say, his partner, hey, I thought we agreed, kids in bed by 9.20. And then his partner Let's say it's another guy says back, hey, quit telling me how to parent. Don't be bossing me around. All right? For that person, it's suddenly an autonomy issue, right? Whereas, and then the other person is shocked what? I thought we were a we. I'm just kind of wanting to be together with you. You made an agreement with me. You know, uh, whoa, how come you're getting so intense? You know, and then you shouldn't be that way. What? Now you're telling me how to be. Just like other people do. And you do way too much. And then now, game on, right? And it was just about the kids' bedtime. So, recognizing the deeper stakes, the real stakes on the table, very, very useful thing. Okay? Sorry, did you say autonomy versus what? Intimacy. It's not always that, but that's kind of a classic uh, tension in different, especially romantic couples. One person tends to value joining and intimacy. The other person has a hot button on autonomy, not being dominated, not being controlled, not being top-down told what to do. Okay? So then, solutions. Facts. Facts are good. A lot of arguments have a very loose relationship to facts. (laughs) Right? I can make political comments, but I won't. Because I'm not supposed to from this chair. Anyway, uh, so my point is that often, if you get to the facts, it really narrows the dispute. If you're trying to talk about how many sweets the child can have, or how many times you make love this week, or month, or year on average, or um, what's going to happen with money, you know, it cuts through a lot of arguments, you know between spendthrift and control freak if you realize that the range of the argument is about $20 a week. all right. Establishing the facts really helps clarifying things. The deepest wants, the Z, very important to get at. That's another way of talking about what I was calling imperatives, whether it's intimacy or autonomy or something else. What are the deep wants that the other person has and can you speak your own? Often it's vulnerable to name our deep wants you know it's scary and yet that's so fundamental that's so important focusing on the future most arguments are about the past sometimes we have to clear the past but i love i don't have to i don't have to quarrel with with a person's account of the past i'm zeroed in on are you going to do it again well i never did it in the first place great then we won't have a problem you know in other words like what I'm focused on the future because that's what I really, really care about, usually. Okay? Is that clear so far? And then making requests rather than orders. That's not really up here. It should be. You know, requests from now on. Now, if they don't give you the request, you may act accordingly. You may scale the relationship back to its actual foundation, right? Um, But the frame of it is not an order because most situations we we really don't have the we're not we don't have the basis to give someone an order a command most we can do is a request but people often are much more willing to hear what we want if it comes to them as a clean request so questions about what a clean request is and then we'll finish with a little practice or questions about anything else so far great Oh, um, different examples. So from now on, would you be willing to not uh, call me names? From now on, would you be willing to get home by 6 or call if you're stuck in traffic? You know, that's, those are clean requests. Often they're little. So often requests are sort of implicit or tacit. But if there's any issue around, I thought we had an agreement and you didn't think we did, Uh, It often helps to make things pretty darn explicit. You know, uh, there's no make-wrong in the request. Uh, From now on, sweetheart, could you please stop being such a jerk? That's not a clean request, you know. um, It's got an implicit criticism in it. Uh, You know, asking and recognizing their autonomy, too. We can feel when others recognize our autonomy. We understand they want us to do something, but they're playing by the rules because they're recognizing our autonomy. Maybe a more specific example could help me too, but that's what I'd say so far. Any other questions? Or is there, Yeah. I like nightmare scenarios. I'm good with them. Yeah. All right, a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Thank you for bringing that up. So a couple things here, so um, So, it's appropriate for me to have to offer my opinions or views about Buddhism or neuropsychology, there are certain aspects of parenting that have to do with values, right? So that's the place of other, for each person to decide for themselves. That said, uh, in the case she brings up, what do you do with a seven-year-old, let's say, who says, "You're not the boss of me, right? I'm the boss of me." Uh, our version of that at our home. Was our 10-year-old son, nine-year-old son and his six-year-old sister chanting in unison? "Kids rule. Parents, drool. Kids, rule. Parents, drool." All right. So all right, that dinner was a, that was a memorable dinner in the Hansen household. So, so a couple of things about it, then we'll go maybe out into a practice and I'll stick around. So a few points here, right? It really helps, of course, to notice how we get activated ourselves. Are you kidding me? I bore you for nine months, let you chew on my body, wiped your butt, and now you're laying this. You know what I mean? We like, it's helpful, or other versions of how dare you, whatever it may be, okay? So it helps to, and that's where, if you're interested in doing this, taking on as a personal vow or admonition each day, to not speak or act from anger, let's say, or in particular with a person, like a child. You may be firm, you may be fierce, but you don't speak or act from anger. That's the distinction. Uh, You know, it helps you slow down to really figure out what you're going to do. And then I think it helps to realize that, look, you're the seven-year-old, you know, you. I'm the. Um, it's the Goodwill Hunting moment where that world's best movie therapist, Robin Williams, with young Matt Damon, the movie Goodwill Hunting. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it highly. He says essentially to Matt Damon, "I realized uh, that you don't know Diddley, basically." And it's with the. You know, so it helps us to realize I'm going to play the long game to win here. So I think doing that with other people, usually we don't have to prevail in the moment. Once in a while, we do they're coming at us in a car accident situation or they're being abusive to someone else we care about, we do need to deal right in the moment. But often, take a breath, marshal our resources, and then when we come in, win. Okay? (laughs) Whoever that is, your seven-year-old, your person in the cubicle next door, your supervisor, your in-laws, your mate, you know, Not like when I'm going to dominate you and be better, but you know what I'm talking about. It's where I started today, processes and causes. We want a certain kind of process to occur. What are the necessary causes and conditions underneath it? I mean, for me, it was often, it's been humbling to appreciate that I've wanted things to happen which just didn't have the supporting causes present. And I was naive or just arrogant to think that those causes were actually present, but they actually weren't. I didn't have the horses in the field. I didn't have the resources lined up to really make this happen. If the problem is this big, I need to scale up resources to that big. I see so many people in situations where the problem is this big, and they keep trying to kid themselves or get other people to tell them that they only need to expend this level of resources. So it's like raising the resources to the level that's needed. Okay, and then moving to a wrap on this point myself here. um, Well, I... I hope it's not inappropriate for me to say it from this place. Um, I think that we are the boss of our children uh, because we have a duty to them and we cannot fulfill our profound duty to the ones that we've inflicted consciousness upon, right? <laughs> if we don't have the power to boss them in some ways, to boss them out of the street, to boss their hand off, to the, off the hot plate, you know, to boss them into learning how to do... You know, relevant academic skills because it will serve them down the road. Uh, to boss them that no, they don't get to drive the car uh, if, uh, you know, they've uh, not revealed themselves to be a safe driver. And so I think the sooner that we're on a basis of reality, it goes to a previous response. It's the truth that sets us free, it's ignorance that leads to suffering and harm. We got to be in reality here. Reality is actually by law. You cannot own property without my permission. You cannot sign an agreement without my permission. By property, actually, you need to obey me. And um, there are laws about uh, ungovernable children. (laughs) Now, hopefully you don't have to go there. Um, My wife and I had been so permissive for so long that the night of kids rule, parents drool, we had to go there. We had to actually lay it out, like this is actually reality. And I think there are a lot of kids in certain cultures, including often in Marin, who just don't get w- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or other who just don't get where reality is. They're they're we love them to pieces, but they're deluded. And they love their delusion because it makes them feel good. Plus it drives us crazy and that's pretty gratifying, you know? But it's not reality and it'll come back to haunt them. It's a golf ball. They're striking that golf ball. This fantasy they have that you're not the boss of me that fantasy will come back, you know, and hit them hard one day. So, no, actually, I'm the boss of you. (laughs) I need to be a good boss. I'm a boss who loves you dearly. I want to avoid being your boss, because I know there's always collateral damage if I have to boss you around. I don't want to be your boss. So, to help me give you what you want, which is tons of freedom and access to all the goodies, okay, what I need from you... To give you what you want from me is you got to brush your teeth without throwing the toothbrush in the toilet. See what I mean? Or whatever. You can't, or you can't talk to me like that. Or you can't hit your brother on the head. Whatever that is. So maybe that was a long answer to serve some general points um, about being in reality and the structure of what you know, you need to give me for me to give you what you want from me and I want to give you. But it'll be a lot easier to give you if you X, Y, or Z. So that's my request from now on. Okay, Okay, I'm gonna wrap up with a little practice. If you can stand to stay here for the next five minutes, that's how long it'll take. Uh, I'll end with three bells, then I'll happily stick around. Uh, I'll say for myself that this has been a total pleasure Uh, I can't believe I get allowed to do this. And people even leave chocolate, advice, and sometimes money in a basket. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty good. I would do this if you didn't. So anyway, I'm very appreciative of your willingness to be here. So let's do a little practice here about expanding the circle of us. Okay? So as you recall, the two wolves in the heart, the wolf of love sees, um, you know, basically one... Uh, circle that includes wider and wider beings. Wolf of Hate sees circles that are my nation, my religion, my political party, my kinship group, my family, uh, or just me. Okay. So let's start with the Wolf of Love, starting with yourself, locating and finding a feeling of kindness and concern for yourself. And then see if you can expand out your circle of us to include people that are near and dear to you, or fundamentally dear to you, even if they live far away. If you like, you can have soft thoughts like, may you be peaceful, may you be healthy, may you be truly happy. And then expanding the circle of us to include many, many neutral people. Perhaps people in this room, perhaps people in your neighborhood or workplace or just, you just know are in your city or county, or area where you live. Radiating good wishes, perhaps with soft words in the back of your mind, like, may you be free. May your children not suffer. And then seeing if you can include people that are more challenging. Start with the easy ones first. Recognizing, even if we disapprove, that we recognize some commonalities. You two feel pain. You two probably have someone that you care about. You too will face death someday. You two were once an innocent child. We share this in common. See if you can, just recognize that at at a certain level, they're in the us, too. And then see if you can expand the circle of us to somehow encompass the whole Earth, the whole planet. You might bring to mind people that you know exist, even though you don't know them personally. A child playing in Moscow. Uh, A man reading to his son in New Zealand. Two women talking with each other in China. People hurrying through a market in Africa. Someone being born somewhere. Someone dying somewhere. All in your circle of us. Letting it sink in, whatever feelings of peacefulness or coming home or good heartedness are here for you. Then expanding to include non human life, the creatures of the land, the water, and the air. microbes, even, and plants, all life, included in a vast circle of us. Wishing it well. May you be at ease. And then last, as a bit of a bonus, if it's at all real for you and you want to, you can let your imagination expand beyond the Earth, wider out to the solar system, our galaxy, even somehow all the way out, imagine the great circle of us that encompasses the entire universe. So that in some sense, all new life is part of our own family. All beings are our band. All life are relatives, the whole earth, our home. It truly was a privilege to be with you. May you be with Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.